Hi there, and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome Jenny Stokovic, the founder of VWS. Hi, Jenny. How's it going? It is going fantastic. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Great to get you on the show. Um, and you're normally based in San Francisco, right? I am, yes, all the way over on the West Coast. A little bit of a precarious time right now, I will say. Uh, San Francisco has been completely locked down for, well, March 5th, March 6th. Most things closed up. Uh, it's starting to reopen a little bit right now, but 10% capacity at the gym and only outdoor seating is, is where we're at. So hopefully things are going to get back on track very soon. Oh, wow. At least at least uh, the gyms you've got 10% here in London, they're all still closed. Uh, so oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a nightmare. <laughs> I know. My, uh, my entire family is in Toronto still, where I'm originally from, and uh, they have been in lockdown for over 100 days, oh, wow. ever since the day after Christmas, which is just madness. You can imagine in the snow. <laughs> yeah, totally. So today we're going to be talking about a few things, but it'd be great to start on uh, the VWS Summit um, that you launched uh, last year. So it'd be good to touch on what sort of led you to create it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So VWS, uh, Vegan Women's Summit, we're a global media and events organization um, dedicated exclusively to empowering women to build a kinder, more sustainable world. And the answer to why we created it is, is very simple. Women have not been getting the amplification that they need um, to really be able to take the plant-based world to the next level. Um, and what that means is, you know, women are, are much less likely to get investment. Women are much less likely to get press coverage. Women are much less likely to be in roles of leadership um, across the plant-based world. And so we're looking to build a more equitable and diverse future of food, fashion, beauty, biotechnology, you name it. There's so many interesting um, areas of focus across the animal free economy. And so we're working to exclusively empower those women um, into these positions and, and really launch them to the next level. Uh, we, were, we were started back in uh, 2020 at the beginning of the year, we actually kicked off with the Vegan Women's Summit, which is our flagship conference in San Francisco. If you can believe it, we had an in-person event last year, yeah. which just seems wild. Uh, so I, I would like to say that there's some vegan karma. That's the, the joke my husband and I used that was looking down on us that day. Um, so shortly after we did this massive global sold out conference, the entire world stopped. Uh, after that, we decided well, we have two things that we can do. We can decide, all right, let's hold on uh, until things go back to normal, quote unquote, or we can pivot this huge growing community into a virtual setting and see what we can build. And so we, of course, decided to go with the latter of the two, um, pivoted to virtual, and it has just been wild ever since. So our very first virtual event back in March was with Miyoko Shinner and Tabitha Brown, and it is just going up and up and up. Um, so we have thousands and thousands of live attendees that we are reaching all across the world. Um, we have a global presence across six continents at this point. So I'm still trying to get Antarctica. So if anybody knows a vegan woman leader that's stationed down in Antarctica, let me know. We'll add her to the community. Uh, but yeah, things are just really um, growing quite quickly. We also uh, conducted the world's first women founder study 
in the plant and cell based space. So last summer in 2020, we actually reached out to over 160 women founders and CEOs across six continents and spoke to them about what their experience has been like growing in this industry. We have everything from relationships with investors, some of the barriers that they have had to go through, uh, all the way to how COVID has affected you. Uh, more than 50% or so of, of the founders we work with are mothers as well and caregivers, and really just trying to create that detailed picture of what women in the space are going through and how we can better support them. Uh, once we released those results in September of 2020, we announced Pathfinder, which is our other summit that we do. So we have two summits um, every year. Pathfinder is the world's first women founder summit and pitch competition dedicated exclusively to plant-based innovation. Awesome. So just to touch on uh, that survey, um, especially where you mentioned about uh, gaining investment, what was a lot of the, uh, from the results of the survey that you saw were the blockers? What, what were, was it getting investors time? Was it some other excuses that were being made? And how did the how did the successful ones overcome that? That's a great question. So women founders face um, a number of barriers, especially women of color founders that you know, male founders just quite simply don't face, right? So about half of all of the founders we spoke to have experienced bias and discrimination directly from investors which is just shockingly high to think in 2021. Um, and the most common thing that was faced was of course, gender bias. So 75% reported gender bias, three quarters. And at the, at the time we're actually having this conversation, we're you know, coming off of a really big uh, discussion that's going on in, in the public discourse about these kinds of issues, you know, especially over in the UK right now, uh, women just are experiencing record amounts of of just discrimination, um, gender-focused bias. We also had uh, a big, big one was racial bias as well. So about half of all of our founders of color experienced racial bias from investors. And bias can be, it, it really ranges, right? So on one end, we have a lot of uh, women that reported, you know, investors say things such as, well, do you have kids at home? How are you going to do this? You know, the kinds of questions that they don't ask male founders. Nobody asks a male founder if they're a father, but it's very, very common uh, for investors to ask women founders if they're a mother and who they ask questions like who's taking care of the kids right now while you're in this meeting. Uh, we have stories of women that take their wedding rings off before they go to meet with investors, unfortunately. Um, so that's, you know, one end of it. But then there's also uh, a little bit of a more unconscious bias that we're faced where women, when they present products that are more focused towards perhaps women demographics, they're less likely to gain that kind of traction from investors uh, because investors up until very recently and still to this day tend to be from certain demographics. And so there's a, a lot of blind spots that can happen when you have so many um, people, all of this, the same backgrounds that are doing investing. A great example of this is up until recently, there wasn't a single vegan diaper in North America. You know, uh, there, there was up until recently very, very little innovation has been done in plant-based formula. 
Uh, so there's a big, you know, Sprout is a big one that came out of Australia about a month and a bit ago um, with also a woman co-founder. And so that's a great example of how if investors are not part of these industries or, or part of these communities where they experience those pain points, they're less likely to fund those types of products. And so that's what I mean by gender bias can really range quite a bit in what it looks like to the founder. Um, it wasn't all negative, though, of course. So we also had, um, you know, more than 90% of the women that we spoke to were going out to fundraise when, within the next six to 12 months. So women are definitely going out to ask for money. These companies are growing very quickly, which is really, really exciting. And the majority of them were looking for a million dollars or more. So these are serious fundraising um, rounds that are going to be happening. So, you know, mm -hmm. while there's so many barriers that, that women are currently facing, another one that I'll just quickly add is the networking gap as well, um, which can get a lot worse in a Zoom setting. So if you already aren't plugged into the investor community, it can be even harder to access them. Um, those barriers happening at the same time as women are going out in record numbers to fundraise, we've got a really big opportunity on our hands. So that was a big, a big takeaway uh, was how can we identify these opportunities? How can we remove these barriers? What are the keys to success to removing the barriers? Another really great key to success was having women investors in your fund. Women are much more likely to succeed if there's women investors in their fund. In fact, um, the majority of barriers that women actually experience compared to male founders it's been shown in studies are completely erased if there's at least one woman investor in the fund that they uh, raise from. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's something that we we also definitely need to encourage more where there's more women coming into these institutions to, to yeah. and, and there's some, I guess there's some good cases like, you know, Lisa from Stray Dog, she, she's doing great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we just need more, more of them. And I think that will come as, this industry starts to mature, but they also need to see that this is an opportunity for them to go into those roles. And exactly. those firms need to be open to get them to that level as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's the last piece, right? We need to make sure that those women that are represented in these positions of power. So we're not talking about just CEOs, but we're talking about the rest of the C-suite too, especially for a lot of these big food tech companies. Um, a lot of the early food tech companies that we now know as household names were started by men, um, predominantly in my area in Silicon Valley, right? So yeah. it, it was very concentrated early on. Um, so how do we diversify that, right? So a big piece of that is, of course, making sure women are represented in the C-suite, making sure women are represented on the board, making sure that women are represented in funds, especially women of color in particular, because there's just so many nuances that people experience having different lived experiences that won't be captured if everybody comes from the same background. The pregnancy, uh, the entire area of pregnancy is a great one where we're just just starting to see all these amazing plant-based products come out for babies and pregnancy. But I mean, think about 50% of the world are women and you know, look at the rates of the amount of women that are mothers, especially in this space, like what a huge untapped white space. Yeah, totally, yeah. And it's also to do with the um, demographics sort of ethnically, right, as well, like, um, yeah. Obviously, companies that are targeting, say, for example, an African Caribbean market, 
uh, that segment is growing than, faster than any other segment in the US, for example. And yeah. so I see that as a huge opportunity that there should be more, uh, you know, women of leadership addressing that market of their own, right, as well, um, because nobody would understand that market better than they would. Absolutely. That's a huge focus of what we've been trying to do, especially with Pathfinder. So with Pathfinder, more than 60% of our founders that applied to the pitch competition were women of color. Uh, in particular, 26% were black founders because black women are the fastest growing demographic right now in North America for adopting a plant-based diet. And there's just so much momentum happening right now. In particular, you know, you've got the success stories of Tabitha Brown as, as well and, and some really amazing people that are helping to bring plant-based to this community. Um, in addition to the fact that historically, so many of these cultures, you know, they go back hundreds and thousands of years with their culture having a predominantly plant-based diet as well. So there's just so many different angles that are all aligning up, uh, um, all together in addition to the fact that 90% of Black Americans are lactose intolerant. Right, exactly, yeah. So that, the, like, yes. Exactly, so the market is, the market is ripe. And, and what's really important though is that women should have the ability to put their dollar and spend their dollar on people that look like them. Everybody should have that ability. You should be able to support the community that you come from with your dollar. And so if we don't make a, very strong concerted effort to make sure that all these amazing black women that are building the space get the recognition and the money that they deserve. We're missing out on so much talent. We're missing out on a huge market opportunity. We're missing out on an entire community. We can't leave them behind um, because, you know, historically that is really what has happened. We have not been funding um, people of color, but specifically women of color in 2020. 0.54% of all capital investment went towards women of color. 2.5% to women in general. Mm, wow. Like it's just, it's shocking. You, you think there's no possible way. And that number went down as well, by the way. And it's oh, also wow. important to understand that in 2020, that was actually down from 2019 for women uh, and people of color getting investments. There are... Um... You know that there there are VC firms now that are coming up that are uh, run. I think Corey and and Stephanie who have created mm -hmm. their fund, yeah. which is great. Um, but we definitely want to see more of them coming up. And um, you know, if we spoke about the you know the stuff happening in in the UK with obviously with Meghan Markle here that that happened. Uh, but and and that that interview was so sort of insightful i guess you know and it's definitely put it put the situation on a global stage that it, that it needs to be um and i think it, people will start to come up with their own stories of situations that have happened and i think perhaps this level of transparency will help to change things yeah absolutely it's really important that we acknowledge these types of situations that we acknowledge that there are true barriers that exist right now and that everybody has a different lived experience, right? Um, you know, just women in general too, in addition to, you know, it's one thing to be like a woman of color, but even the, the uh, report that came out of the UK a week ago, 97% of women in the UK reported experiencing sexual harassment, 97%. Right. Do you know what most women I spoke to said when they saw that? Who are that 3%? I'm surprised it wasn't 100. Wow. 
Okay. That's crazy. But every man that I spoke to said, wow, I can't believe it's that high. But that yeah. just goes to show you the completely different worlds that these, these two genders are living in, right? And so imagine that's just one piece of between, you know, male founders and, and female founders. We had, we had all kinds of stories of sexual harassment, unfortunately, from investors in our founders survey. We had stories of investors trying to jump in, uh, you know, founders Ubers to get into their hotel rooms, which is just, you know, completely wild to think that that's going on. But if we don't shine a light on these types of stories and really take them seriously and collect the data, that's the other thing. You know, these can't just be anecdotes. They have to be created in a way that it's data driven so that we actually have real statistics around it. And while 99% of the people in this community are incredible, and especially some of the men that I work with are the greatest allies, they are just absolutely champions. There are unfortunately still these experiences that occur and until we face them head on, they're going to continue to occur. Yeah. So thinking about uh, the opportunities, I think you touched on some of those already, um, but it would be great to explore more, especially with the different sectors and, and where you see things going. And especially with some of the uh, women entrepreneurs that have started businesses that you're quite pleased uh, with their progress that they've made. Is there any that you would like to sort of highlight either, you know, individual companies or uh, just sectors in general? Well, I know that I mentioned the pregnancy infant yes. care sector, but yeah. that is a huge one. That's a huge opportunity for so many different angles, right? There's um, the entire opportunity towards revolutionizing what infant formula looks like. Um, everything from, well, plant-based is one, but cell-based breast milk is a big one. Um, we work closely with a number of founders. There's, there's actually two founders that are working on cell-based breast milk on opposite parts of the world right now. Um, one in North Carolina, United States, the other one in Singapore, creating the world's first cell-based yeah. breast milk. In Singapore, by the way, was it uh, Touch Tree Labs that you're working with? Yes. Yeah, they yeah, came so on my show. Uh, it was amazing, yeah, what they uh, yeah. created already. And also the momentum that they've had on the investment side. Yeah, absolutely. Because breast milk and breastfeeding is a huge barrier for a number of reasons for, for getting women um, back into the workplace for, for infants to be able to, to actually breastfeed for longer, because there's so many reasons why most um, infants are not able to breastfeed past six months, if they even make it to six months, a big one being that their uh, mothers, you know, end up going back to work, or perhaps they have issues with breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge one that I'm really excited about. But in addition to that, there's an entire category um, as well for toddler food for baby foods, we're just starting to figure out, you know, how do we make healthier baby foods? Um, infant formula came out in the 70s and they did not uh, really innovate on the recipe until recently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we also have some great companies like Tiny Organics that we're working with. They're creating a savory first um, plant-based uh, toddler and baby food line. Yeah. And what's really exciting about that it's, it's interesting because at first you say savory first, like you can feed, you can feed babies non, you know, bananas and apples and things like that. Um, but what their studies actually show is that one of the biggest reasons why we're seeing a diabetes epidemic right now, we're seeing it in the United States, we're seeing it in the UK, we're seeing it. I mean, we're seeing it huge in China. They're having a huge rate. Saudi Arabia has got a huge, you know, out of control epidemic. And one of the big reasons is, you know, people have a sugar addiction totally. and they now, 
they can now see that that sugar addiction can actually begin when you're a baby. And if you are fed really, really high sugary foods um, from just your littlest stages, that overdevelops those sugar taste buds and you'll go on to have that the rest of your life. Uh, so what they're doing at Tiny Organics is they're actually creating savory first foods where you will be eating things like curry and kales and all kinds of foods that develop the other taste buds in your mouth. And then you'll be more likely to have a diverse palate and be less sugar obsessed as you grow up. So we could completely change an entire generation of kids with just products like that alone. Um, so that's a space that I'm also really excited about. And then I'll take you to the other end of life, mm. the perennial stage. Okay. What is going on? with perennial nutrition. Very, very little mm. has been updated for senior citizens and those that are aging. Uh, we really, same as what we, you know, infant formula, we really have not done a very great job on addressing the perennial stage for um, the types of like meal solutions. There's really nothing that's plant-based out there right now. That's gonna be a huge space. You know, mm. for those that are listening right now and say, I never even thought about senior citizens and elder care. I promise you, this is going to be one of the next big spaces in plant-based, you know, write it down now. Remember journey on that show uh, said it because there's a huge opportunity here, especially as the boomers are aging into their, their um, twilight years, as they say, there's going to be a big opportunity for meal, uh, meal replacements. Um, much like I said, you know, say 90% of, of black Americans, for instance, can are lactose intolerant. Uh, many Asian Americans are lactose intolerant. There's so many um, different intolerances and food preferences that are not being served at all in that category. So yeah. a lot's going to come there too. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, th I never thought about that market. I think uh, obviously, you know, when they have the meal replacements, it's usually made up of these like shakes, is it? Nutritional. Exactly. And, and exactly. Most of that is milk based, milk powder based, they, I guess. They all are. They're, they're essentially, for lack of a, you know, a better term, they're, they're kind of like infant formula, just tweaked a little bit for, for right. the, your end of life stages. And, you know, as we think about what's going to happen when we expand elder care, and we have so many people that are we have an aging population, right? We, we do in North America, Europe has an aging population, Japan has an aging population. So many of us are gonna be faced with a huge amount of folks moving into elder care. And what are the food solutions that are scalable for those folks? And mm. right now, we're still using the same stuff from decades ago. Yeah. And, you know, and combine that with the fact that we have all of this cutting edge research that shows that first off, we know that uh, plant-based diet is clinically proven to reverse um, type 2 diabetes. Totally we right. also know that you have more than a 60% increased chance of getting Alzheimer's if you have type 2 diabetes. They now call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. So if you think about that, this plant-based nutrition could also be used to help potentially um, cure or put some of these types of symptoms into remission. Okay. I have a good friend who's, who's working on research specifically around using plant-based diets to reverse early Alzheimer's as well. Yeah, I should connect you with, uh, yeah, the, there's uh, Plant-Based Health Online. They've just launched in the UK where, you know, GPs have come together to create this uh, advisory yeah. for their patients. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence-based results that are coming out now uh, just to prove these studies uh, that you can reverse uh, heart disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, and even um, uh, 
uh, help with the recovery for types of cancer as well. So, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll help towards that, you know, to try. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to touch on earlier that you said about the, the diapers, I, I guess not all diapers are vegan. <sighs> Is it because is it because of the gel inside? Yeah. Is that you, okay. I was assuming. It's I was, the glue. Yeah, I, I actually didn't think about that, but yeah, that's a that's a big one. So, are there companies out now that are are then producing this that are are vegan and also in in relation to that uh, eco friendly packaging? Right, is is a big one like the packaging, but the, you know to make sure they just don't land in the in the landfill. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where I'm going to plug another amazing woman founder, Daniela Monet, the founder of Kinder Beauty Box. Her yeah. new startup is specifically working on plant-based diapers. And how did she come up with the idea? It was simple. She, and those of you that joined Pathfinder as well, our summit in December, she actually spoke about how she created the company there. She got pregnant herself. She's been an ethical vegan for many, many, many years. And she went looking on the market to find some diapers to buy her baby. And there were none. No. There just quite simply were none uh, because nobody had ever looked at the glues and, and the adhesives that put together a diaper. But again, this is such a great example of there's so many women that are out there having babies all of the time that want to make better choices you know, for their infant care, but nobody is really put money into creating those solutions. So that's another really great solution that comes out of having more women in the investment space because they'll understand because they're more likely to have had experiences with infants and toddlers. Yeah, got it, yeah. So It's exciting. Yeah, so I think that's a great idea, by the way. I think, it, you know, yeah, having having gone through the process on, on the father's side, obviously with raising two daughters, uh, you know, at that time when they're, you know, in nappies, you just feel frustrated that you're wasting so many of those, you know, back in my day, it was towels, right? And, and the, yeah. you know, the parents would wash them out in the, in the wash machine and stuff. So, um, so thinking about, um, you know, your, of all the people that you've met, uh, all the uh, vegan female leaders, who's inspired you the most, actually? Well, I think, you know, one of the obvious, of course, who's been a close friend and mentor of mine for years now would be Miyoko. Uh, Miyoko is just an incredible woman that has been able to accomplish so much. Um, so she's, she's so, what's so interesting is she has been creating businesses in the vegan space for over 30 years. And she didn't get her first, you know, funded business, Miyoko's Creamery, that, you know, the cheese we all know and love until she was 57. Yeah, and that's so, amazing. I actually heard us. Yeah, so thank you for inviting me to the Connect uh, event that you had the other day, and I heard her speak, and she told that story, and and that's that's a good case, isn't it, to say you can start a business whatever age you are. Yeah, absolutely. Age discrimination, unfortunately, remains one of the most common um, cited biases that the women that we work with have cited, and it's interesting. It's it's bimodal. So there's women. On the too young side, they get often told, you know, you're way too young to start a company. And then there's women um, that are, you know, a little bit older, like Miyoko, that are told you're too old to start a company. So mm -hmm. it's really incredible to see women like her that are able to, to do it, um, to do it at the age of 57, um, to be a leading CEO um, going into your 60s and just absolutely killing it is just incredible. And I think that there's a lot of lessons and inspiration that can be drawn from a leader like her. 
Um, there's, there's a lot of amazing vegan women that are in the space that have been for a really, really long time. And it's really exciting to see that they're finally getting the recognition that they deserve. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, 80% of vegans are women. So why don't we talk more about these vegan women leaders? Yeah, totally. So, um, apart from, uh, the vegan women's summit, you're also, uh, working for SF, um, dot city, which basically represents, um, tech firms and you help them, um, sort of engage and advocate to the, the city, uh, policymakers. Um, so there has been a lot around, you know, um, this tech exodus, especially in San Francisco. Um, and, but it's uh, not, uh, there's still many companies like Google and, and Salesforce that have big hubs, right, uh, in, in San Francisco, but there has been a few companies moving out. Um, have you been involved in those discussions as well with, the, with these companies and, you know, trying to navigate that space? That has been all I've been working on for the better part of the year when it comes to the tech policy work I do in addition to VWS. So uh, it's, it's a changing world out there when it comes to, to what the future of work is going to look like. I think we all know that. And we have been faced in San Francisco, but not just San Francisco, um, other urban areas with what appears to be an exodus. Um, so thus far, um, about 10% of San Francisco has left during the pandemic. New York has seen, you know, very similar numbers and, and other big hubs. I'm sure London probably has seen to some yeah. degree an exodus as well. And to the extent that that exodus is going to remain permanent, that is something we still don't know. So the last time that uh, we saw something like this was the dot-com crash. Um, so everybody will remember back in the very early 2000s, we had the dot-com boom, and then it crashed. Uh, in San Francisco in particular, we had 30,000 people leave the city within two or three months. Um, all the tech workers left because all the companies just went belly up really, really quickly. So we have seen these kinds of busts before, but what we have not seen is a world where remote work could continue to proliferate. So back in 2000 and 2001 and in some of those early days, we didn't have Zoom like we have right now. We didn't have Slack. We didn't have all of these tools to make it so that your team could still really function um, the way that they you know, have been for the last year or so. So as we think about that, what is the footprint of tech going to look like in the world uh, post-pandemic? We don't 100% know. We don't know in San Francisco. We don't know in New York. We don't know in London. We don't, we don't know what offices will look like when they turn back on. But one thing that I can say is that, you know, I've spent my career working very closely with the world's largest tech companies, including, you know, Google and Salesforce, both that you mentioned. I'm very close to both of their leadership teams. We know that a good, a good amount of employees do want to have flexibility to not be in an office Monday to Friday. So while I don't think that offices will completely disappear, I do think that the way offices are used will change, uh, which of course can be evidenced by the many, many, many companies that have put their space up for lease. So essentially all of the largest tech companies in not just San Francisco, but in the country have changed their office spaces uh, in the last year because they do expect that going forward, the majority of employees will want to use the space in a more flexible arrangement, not a, I have a name 
uh, with my, I have a name on my desk. This is the spot I go every day from nine to five, Monday to Friday, but more of a, hey, I'm hanging out at home, maybe Monday to Thursday on Friday, I go into the office, we do some team meetings, and then I go back home for the rest of the week kind of thing. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it'll, it'll be very interesting, though, the economic impact of what that has on cities that are used to full offices. Yeah, I, I definitely see that happening as well. And, um, you know, reorganizing the offices so there's more of this communal area where they can engage in, you know, wider team meetings and meet their colleagues yeah. they haven't seen for a while. And so I think we'll start to see that happening in phase uh, approaches, right, as as different, you know, um, uh, cities come out of lockdown, etc. cetera, uh, then we'll start to see that happening. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I also think food tech is a really big opportunity here too. We're starting to see all these new plant-based and, and food, tech er food tech areas that are emerging as a result, because as, as we mentioned that the tech capital of the world, of course, has been the Valley and, and, and San Francisco, the food tech capital of the world has also really been the Bay Area as well, right? So many of them came specifically, you know, we've got Impossible and Memphis Meats and Just, and I mean, just a little bit down the ways towards LA is beyond. So much of like the modern plant-based economy started in the Bay Area as well. Uh, and it's also like extremely expensive. It, it was in the news a few days ago that Impossible is gonna have to move out of their big um, office because they've run out of space. <laughs> and they need like way, way, way more space to be able to produce on the scale that they need to. So I do think that you're going to see a lot more food tech companies emerging out of Austin. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned North Carolina when we were speaking to Raleigh, North Carolina is doing extremely well, specifically in bio and cell based tech. Uh, you're going to see probably, you know, uh, Stephanie, who you mentioned earlier and Corey really want to bring more folks down to Louisiana to the South. The South has a lot of really great opportunities. They have really, really good schools, research institutions there that could um, really foster the kind of community you need. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. If you want to create a food tech hub, it doesn't have to be in the Valley anymore either. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, we both know Ryan quite well from, from Wild Earth and he's, he's moved down to, uh, well, him personally, uh, to North Carolina. And so he's forming the office there where Research Triangle is. So there, there can be these different hubs, can't they, being formed? Um, and I guess as we change the way we work and it becomes, you know, especially what we've seen last year and this year, you can do work remotely with different regions and different countries and collaborate on, on multiple projects. So, yeah, I think it's exciting. Um, as long as those core cities can remain to be, you know, a buzz where, where you can go back if you need to, right? Yeah, I think that the way that cities will will play a role, I mean, first off, there's going to be people that never leave the city. There's people that never want to live outside of a city. So they'll stay, for sure. But there's also a lot of people that moved to the city because that was the only place to get a good career. And that's how they had to launch pad their career. And they, they don't necessarily want to be in the city. So those are the folks I think that will leave. And so what we're going to be left with is this opportunity to make cities really these, these intersection, you know, catalytic points where they can serve as you know, really great hub areas for people to move in and out. Um, they don't necessarily have to all be living nearby, but, you know, just really it's an intersection point. And that's 
that's historically what a lot of cities were. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't until the millennial generation that we actually saw the reurbanization of cities. Uh, back before the millennials, people didn't want to live in the city. Um, and that's a big part of why housing affordability went up so much because the younger generation, which I shouldn't say younger because now millennials are as, as, as old as 41, um, they really didn't want to have a career um, where they commuted into the city and they lived in the suburbs like perhaps Gen X or baby boomers before them. Um, so what is Gen Z going to do? And more to the point, what is Gen Alpha going to do? Because mm -hmm. in four years from now, Gen Alpha is going to be entering high school. So they're going to have some consumer buying power very soon. And before you know it, they'll be entering the workforce. And they have gone through the pandemic and seen this remote work shift at a time when they're young enough to be able to adopt it. They're young enough to be able to, to convert to Zoom like it's, it's, like it's nothing to them. Um, so I do think that it's going to be interesting to see what the next five and 10 years looks like. Yeah, I think the other point to, to that um, is that generation has had to adopt the Zoom online studies, right? But has it been that effective for them? And, you know, what, what will happen to that generation where they could be lacking in some skills, especially, you know, with different groups of, uh, of, of students not having access to the internet or even laptops and that also comes into the equation whereas at least when they're at school they would have had it so you know there there were even talks here like whether they should extend the year or you know how how that's going to work out but yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens with that generation including you know my daughters who are affected by it as well yeah i mean bridging that digital divide is is something that's been needed to happen for a long long time because these these students they, they've had this issue going home to do their homework for all of these years. It's only become very acute now because everybody's getting all of their learning through the internet at home, but these students have been struggling for a very long time. Mm. Um, you know, we had a viral tweet about oh, maybe nine or 10 months ago down in Silicon Valley. It was somewhere outside of Palo Alto where it was a bunch of kids doing their homework outside of the library that was closed. And it was the evening, it was dark out and they were all just sitting there using the Wi-Fi outside of the library, sitting on the ground outside oh, because wow. they didn't have it at home. You know, in, in California, in California in the United States, in Silicon Valley, they didn't have internet at home. So yeah. this has been an issue. It's been an issue for a long time. It just hasn't got the spotlight that it needed. Uh, and now, I think that you're going to see a lot of investment too, probably from the government to get uh, widespread, you know, 5G broadband and things like that out there as a solution. Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah. And um, so you're also working with Mercy for Animals, which is fantastic. So do you want to tell me about what you've been doing for them so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the vice chair of the advisory council at Mercy for Animals. So we help to really find ways to bring more young professionals into the space, right? So historically speaking, there's been a lot of really amazing donors in the animal rights space um, that are a little bit older. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we're, we're we're looking to specifically target those that are under 40, a lot of like up and coming young professionals so that they know some of the opportunities that are available for them uh, to be able to give back to charities that make a really big difference. I specifically am a big supporter of Mercy for Animals. They were one of the, well, they were the um, 
beneficiary as well of uh, the first vegan women's summit. We donate a portion of all of our tickets towards MFA because I believe that they do really, really high quality work and they are the largest farm animal nonprofit in the world. Um, so more than 99% of money that goes towards animal groups goes towards animals that are not factory farm animals. They go towards you know wildlife and conservation. So I specifically spend as much of my time as possible on factory uh, farm animals because they're the ones that get the least amount of money, the least amount of attention. And so, you know, folks that laser in on that, I think are the most effective. I also work to connect on policy issues as well. Uh, as I, as you mentioned earlier, I do advocacy and lobbying. And so we've been working on some really cool legislative solutions too, uh, to get more funding towards plant-based companies because governments also have a great role to play here. And I'm excited about some of the stuff that we have on the horizon. Yeah, I think the the subsidies is the most important one, right? Um, balancing that compared to to what the meat industry gets. Yeah, well, there's there's two schools of thought, right? So one of the schools of thought would be measure um, meeting and 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 having the same amount of subsidies go towards you know almonds and things like that, right? Um, or the other one is how do we abolish these subsidies altogether? So. Yeah. You know, do we want parity or do we want to fix this broken system? Because yeah. this broken system is the reason why we dump hundreds of millions of liters of milk a year. It's the reason why the United States currently has a stockpile of cheese the size of the Capitol building. I think it's bigger than the Capitol building at this point, because we just are producing something that the consumers don't want. Uh, and that frailty of the system was was. I mean, it hasn't been more acute and, and more obvious than this past year in the pandemic when we saw all these um, meat processing plants that had these outbreaks. And then all of a sudden, the entire food system, um, particularly here in the U.S., was disrupted and there was meat shortages everywhere for weeks on end. And, and we finally started to, to see and the, the public started to see that there are serious issues with the way that food is produced in this country and food security is becoming increasingly one of the, the most talked about areas of focus when it comes to investing in food. I think um, food security wasn't really something that a lot of countries took seriously before the pandemic because we'd never really had a disruption at the border. Singapore is a great example of it, right? So Singapore imports like 95% yeah. of their products. Yeah. You know, it's a city of 5 million. Yeah. And now they, they've launched this massive initiative where the, you know, the government said by 2030, we want to produce 30% of our own food because we can't let a pandemic do this again like it did last time. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's that angle as well um, to, to really compel legislators to, hey, take a look at our food system, look at what happened in this last pandemic. We've got ample proof that one of these pandemics could happen again at any time. You know, this one was coronavirus, but there's avian flu, there's swine flu, there's, you know, combined flus, right? H5N1, things like that, that are on the horizon any day now. What are we going to do the next time when there's an even worse disruption if we're not producing our own food? And that's where plant-based solutions and cell-based solutions could be a really, really great way forward. Yeah, totally. Um, so it'll be good to talk a little bit about your your background story. You know, you're so passionate uh, about this space and yeah, really great work that you've been putting in to uh, elevate this, this whole topic for us. So thinking back about VWS, what actually inspired you first of all to create that? You know, what led you to say, you know what, I'm gonna do that. We're gonna start an event. 
Uh, and, you know, when, when did you also become vegan yourself? So I've been vegan myself for six years. Uh, so I decided to create VWS because I was increasingly doing a lot of programming with the food tech industry. So starting in 2008 or so, I actually started putting together some really cool events where I was bringing some of the tech CEOs that I've worked with in uh, my tech life together with the food tech CEOs to really start mainstreaming the opportunity to tech audiences for them to understand that this is really the next big tech industry. And so after doing some really amazing work there, we worked with everyone from Prince Khaled to Susie and Miss Cameron, um, you know, great folks like Stray Dog Capital, Univos. Um, we had the CEO of WeWork, support from Facebook, Postmates, all kinds of companies. I started to realize that it was really just all males that I was working with in the space and it started to really just kind of echo what I'd seen in the valley so having spent my career and building it in Silicon Valley especially in the intersection of tech and politics I'm typically the only woman that's in the room and unfortunately I'm you know usually the youngest in the room and so there's really really lacking they're really lacking diversity of, of all kinds in this industry and and this last year, they've really put a magnifying glass on it for tech. But I didn't want this to happen to food tech, too. Um, if we're going to grow this new food tech industry and it's going to be the next big thing, there's going to be so much wealth that comes into it. There's going to be so much influence that comes into it. And if we don't make an effort to change that status quo, it's going to look just like the tech industry before it. Uh, the best example I can give you for folks that aren't too familiar with the Valley is that Mark Zuckerberg's first 20 employees he had at Facebook were almost all people he went to summer camp with. And so if that doesn't show you just how pervasive that networking gap and what bias can look like, I don't know what does. And so mm -hmm. you, you work with the people you know, you work with the communities you know, you invest in the communities you know. And that is kind of why we've created an insulated bubble in tech and now a little bit in food tech as well. So. I wanted to figure out a way that I could get more support to women, that I could put women on a platform where everyone is listening. And quite honestly, I just decided I'm going to create that platform myself. If nobody else is doing it, let's do it. And it's been amazing. We, we had in our pitch competition over 800 women applied from 31 countries. Our, our summit that we had in December had 46 women CEOs, investors, and founders that spoke across 20 countries. So there's a global movement of women all over that are working in the space, but nobody was really threading it together. And so that's what we are seeking to do. We're seeking to empower the next generation. We're seeking to get the kind of money to this first generation that they need. And um, like I said, it's, it's growing really fast and that's just a testament to how much it was needed. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, thanks for telling me about all the things that you've been doing and uh, best of luck for the upcoming events. Are there ones that we need to look out for that you're, you're launching uh, for the rest of this year? Yeah, absolutely. So the one that you mentioned earlier, VWS Connect is a quarterly event series where we are bringing together mission aligned employers to talk about their career opportunities in front of our community. 
We had an incredible turnout for our first one. We had amazing companies like Miyoko's, Rebellious Foods. We had Super Meat um, all over the world, both um, in Europe, in Asia, and in North America. People came came out for that. So we'll be doing that on a quarterly basis. Mm -hmm. So you can look up VWS Connect on our website, veganwomensummit.com, and find out more when the next one will take place. So it'll be at the end of May, and then we will do two more. Of course, we are bringing back the WS Pathfinder. It's going to be bigger and better than ever. So if you want to be involved in our next big summit and pitch competition, uh, we will be working with partners and bringing them together this spring. It's going to be very, very exciting. If we got 800 applications last year, what do you think we're going to get this year? <laughs> yeah, it'll be skyrocketing. And you, you think that will be September time again, uh, where, where you'll do that one? Um, so we have not yet announced Pathfinder. It will take place in 2021. Um, so if folks are interested in getting involved, you can reach out to me. My email is jennifer at veganwomensummit.com and I will get you all the information you need. One team, one dream. It's going to be uh, it's going to be big, very, very big. Awesome. So yeah, I wish you the best of luck with that and uh, with the Connect event every quarter as well. So yeah, everyone should sign up and make sure that you're you're listed and you can get all the newsletter information as well, right? Of course, yes. If you are interested in finding out all things um, future of food, fashion, beauty, technology, you can go to veganwomensummit.com slash newsletter. I'm sure you'll share this in the show notes, but we have an amazing newsletter where we share about a dozen different women founder stories every Wednesday. It's called our Women Founder Wednesday. And you won't believe some of the cool stuff that's going on out there. Um, we've got biotech entrepreneurs. We've got the future of vegan beauty. So many cool stories every single Wednesday. So I'd love to, to have you all hop on there as well. Great. So thank you again, Jenny. And great to see you again. Thank you. See you. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye.